Chapter Twenty One of No Clue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. No Clue by James Hay. Chapter Twenty One. Ample Evidence. The two men in the library waited a long time for his return. Wilton, elbows on the table, stared straight in front of him, giving no sign of knowledge of the other's presence. Sloane fidgeted with the smelling salts, emitting now and then long-drawn, tremulous sighs that were his own special vocabulary of dissatisfaction. He spoke once. "'Mute and cringing martyrs,' he said in suspicious remonstrance. "'If he'd say something we could deny.' "'So far, Tom, you're mixed up in—' "'Why can't you wait until he's through?' Wilton objected roughly. They heard people coming down the hall. Lucille, following Mrs. Brace into the room, went to her father. They could see, from her look of grieved wonder, that Hastings had told her of the charge against Wilton. The sheriff's expression confirmed the supposition. His mouth hung open so that the unsteady fingers with which he plucked at his knuckle-like chin appeared also to support his fallen jaw. He made a weak-kneed progress from the door to a chair near the screened fireplace. For a full half-minute Hastings was silent, as if to let the doubts and suspense of each member of the group emphasize his dominance of the situation. He reviewed swiftly some of the little things he had used to build up in his own mind the certainty of Wilton's guilt, the man's agitation in the music room at the discovery, not that a part of the gray envelope had been found, but that it contained some of the words of the letter, his obvious alarm when found quarreling with Mrs. Brace in his office, his hardly controlled impulses. Once, outside Sloane's bedroom, to accuse Byrne Webster without proof, and, on the Sloanehurst porch last Sunday, to suggest that Sloane was guilty. The detective observed now that he absolutely ignored Mrs. Brace, not even looking in her direction. He perceived also how she reacted to that assumed indifference. The tightening of her lips, the flutter of her mobile nostrils, left him no longer any doubt that she was in the mood to give him the cooperation she had so bitterly promised. To be dragged down by such a woman, he thought. Mrs. Brace, he said, I've charged Judge Wilton with the murder of your daughter. I say now he killed her with premeditation, having planned it after receiving a letter from her. "'Yes,' she responded, a certain tenseness in her voice. She had gone to a chair by the window, and, like the sheriff, she faced the trio at the table, Wilton, Sloane, and Lucille, who stood behind her father, a hand on his shoulder. Hastings slowly paced the floor as he talked, his hands clasped behind him and now and then moving the tail of his coat up and down. He glanced at Mrs. Brace over the rims of his spectacles, his eyes shrewd and keen. He showed an unmistakable self-satisfaction, 
like the elation Wilton had detected in his bearing on two former occasions. Now, he asked her, what can you tell us about that letter? Wilton, his chest pressed so hard against the edge of the table that his breathing moved his body, turned his swollen face upon her at last, his eyes flaming under the thatch of his down-drawn brows. Mrs. Brace, her high-shouldered, lean frame silhouetted against the window, began in a colorless, unemotioned tone, "'As you know, Mr. Hastings, I thought this man Wilton owed me money. More than money. I'd looked for him for twenty-six years. Less than a year ago I located him here in Virginia, and I came to Washington. He refused my requests. Then he stopped reading my letters, sent them back unopened at first. Later he destroyed them unread, I suppose.' She cleared her throat lightly and spoke more rapidly. The intensity of her hate, in spite of her power of suppression, held them in a disagreeable fascination. I was afraid of him, afraid to confront him alone. I'd seen him kill a man. But I was in desperate need. I thought if my daughter could talk to him, he would be brought to do the right thing. I suppose she said with a wintry smile, you'd call it an attempt to blackmail, if he had to let it go far enough. She wrote him a letter, on gray paper, and sent it, in an oblong gray envelope, to him here at Sloanehurst last Friday night. He got it Saturday afternoon. If he hadn't received it, he'd never have been out on the lawn, with a dagger he'd made for the occasion at eleven or eleven-fifteen, which was the time Mildred said in her letter she'd see him there. She had added that if he did not keep the appointment, she'd expose him, his crime in pursuit. "'I see,' Hastings said on the end of her cold, metallic utterance, and took from his pocket the flap of gray envelope. "'Is this the flap of that envelope? Or, better still, are these fragments of words and the word pursuit in your daughter's handwriting? I've examined them already, she said. They are my daughter's writing. Her lips were suddenly thick, taking on that appearance of abnormal wetness which had so revolted him before. And I say what you've just said, she supplemented, her eyebrows high upon her forehead. Tom Wilton killed my daughter, and when I went to his office, I was sure then that he'd be afraid to harm me so soon after Mildred's death, I accused him of the murder. He took it with a laugh. He said I could look at it as a warning that— Wait! The interruption came from Wilton. I'm going to make a statement about this thing, he ground out, his voice coarse and rasping. Hastings hung upon him with relentless gaze. "'What have you got to say?' "'Much,' returned Wilton. "'I'm not going to let myself be ruined on this charge because of a mistake of my youth. Mistake, I say. I'm about to tell you the story of such suffering 
such misfortune as no man has ever had to endure. It explains that tragedy in pursuit. It explains my life. It explains everything. I didn't murder that boy, Dalton. I struck in self-defense. But the twenty-nine wounds on his body... He paused, preoccupied. He was thinking less of his hearers than of himself. It was at that point, Hastings thought afterwards, that he began to lose himself in the ugly enjoyment of describing his cruelty. It was as if the horrors to which he gave voice subjected him to a specious and irresistible charm, equipped him with a spurious courage, a sincere indifference to common opinion. "'There is,' he said, "'a shadow on my soul. My greatest enemy is hidden in my own mind. But I've fought it, fought it, all my life. You may say the makeshifts I've adopted, the strategy of my resistance, my tactics to outwit this thing, do me little credit. I shall leave it to you to decide. Results speak for themselves. I have broken no law. There is against me nothing that would bring upon me the penalty of man's laws. He wedged himself more closely against the edge of the table and struck his left palm with his clenched right hand. I tell you, Hastings, to have fought this thing, in whatever way, has been a task that called for every ounce of strength I had. I've lived in hell and walked with devils against my will. Not a day, not a night have I been free of this curse or my fear of it. There have been times when, every night for months, my slumbers were broken or impossible. The devilish thing reached down into the depths of sleep and with its foul and muddy grasp poisoned even those clear white pools clear and white for other men. But no matter. You've heard of obsessions, of men seized every six months with an irresistible desire to drink, of kleptomaniacs who, having all they need or wish, must steal or go mad, of others driven by inexplicable impulse, mania, to set fire to buildings for the thrill they get out of seeing the flames burst forth, well, from my earliest childhood until that moment when Roy Dalton attacked me, I had fought an impulse even more terrible than those. God, what a tyranny! It drove me, drove me, that obsession, at times amounting to mental compulsion, to strike, to stab, to make the blood flow. He rose, getting to his feet slowly, so that his burly bulk gained in size, like the slow upheaval of a hillside. Swollen as his face had been, it expanded now a trifle more. His nostrils coarsened more perceptibly. The puffiness that had been in the back of his neck extended entirely around his throat. He hung forward over the table, giving all his attention to Hastings, who was unmoved, incredulous. The brace woman will tell you I had to kill him, he proceeded more swiftly, displaying a questionable ardor like a man foreseeing defeat. 
The mistake I made was in running away, a bitter mistake. But those unnecessary wounds, twenty-eight that need not have been made. The obsession to see the blood flow drove me to acts which a jury, I thought, would not understand. And even if you don't see the force of my explanation, Hastings, if you don't understand, I shall be in little better plight after all these years. He put there a sorrowful appeal into his voice, but a sly contradiction of it showed faintly in his face, a hint that he took a crafty pleasure in dragging into the light the depravity he had kept in darkness for a lifetime. I got away. I drifted to Virginia, working hard and studying much. I became a lawyer, but always I had that affliction to combat. All my life, man, always. There were periods, months long, when devils came up from the ugly corners of my soul to torture and tempt me. It wasn't the ordinary temptation, not a weak, pale idea of, I'd like to kill and see the blood, but an uproar, an imperial voice, an endless command. Kill. Draw blood. Kill. What it did to me. But to this day I've beaten it. I've been a good citizen. I've observed the law. I've refused to let that involuntary lust for blood ruin me or cast me out. Let me tell you how. I decided that if I had a hand in awarding just punishments, my affliction would be abated enough for me to live in some measure of security. There you have the explanation of my being on the bench. I cheated the obsession to murder by helping to imprison or execute those who did murder. That's why I can tell you of my innocence of the Brace murder. Do you think I'd tell it unless I knew there could be not even an excuse for suspecting me? On the other hand, if I had kept silent as to the true motive that drove my hand to those unnecessary mutilations of young Dalton, the only time, remember, that my weakness ever got the better or the worse of me, if I had kept silent on that, you would have had ground for suspecting me of a barbarous murder then, and arguing from that of the brace murder now. Do I make myself clear? Do you want me to go into further detail? He sank slowly back to his chair, spent by the strain of supreme effort. His breathing was labored, stertorous. That, Crown, Hastings denounced, is a confession. Knowing he's caught, he's got the insolence to whine for mercy because of his sufferings. Think of it. The thing of which he boasts is the thing for which he deserves death, since death is supposed to be the supreme punishment. He tells us, in self-congratulatory terms, that he curbed his inhuman longings, satisfied his lust for blood, by going on the bench and helping to punish those who did murder. Too cowardly to strike a blow, he skulked behind the protection of his position. He made of the judicial robe an assassin's disguise. On the bench 
he was free to sate his thirst for others' sufferings, adding to a sentence five undeserved years here, ten there, slipping into his instructions to juries a phrase that would mean the death penalty. He reveled in judicial murders. He gloated over the helpless people who, looking to him for justice, were merely the victims of his abhorrent cruelty. He loved the look of sick surprise in their startling eyes. He got a filthy joy out of seeing a man turn pale. He rubbed his hands in glee when a woman swooned. He... I can't stand that! Can't stand it! Sloane protested, hands over his eyes. What more do you want to prove his guilt, his abominable guilt? Hastings swept on. You have the motive, hatred of this woman here and her daughter. You have the proof of the letter sent to him making the compulsory appointment. You have his own crazy explanation of his homicidal impulse, from which, by the way, he never sought relief, a queer impulse since it gave him time, hours, to plan the crime and manufacture the weapon with which he killed. I said at the start, Wilton put in hoarsely, this man Hastings was only theorizing. If he had anything to connect me with... I have, Hastings told him, and came to a standstill in front of the sheriff, bending over him as if to drive each statement into Crown's reluctant mind. He got that letter a little after five in the afternoon. He left me here, in this room, with Sloane and Webster, and was gone three-quarters of an hour. That was just before dinner. He had the second floor, on that side of the house, entirely to himself. He took a nail file from Webster's dressing case, and in Webster's room put a sharper point on it by filing it roughly with the file blade of his own penknife. That's doubly proved. First, my magnet, with which I went over the floor in Webster's room, picked up small particles of steel. Here they are. He produced a small packet, and without unwrapping it, handed it to Crown. Again, you'll find that the file blade of his knife retained particles of the steel in the little furrows of its corrugated surface. I know, because last Sunday, as your car came up the driveway, I borrowed his knife on the pretext of tightening a screw in the blade of mine, and I examined it. He put up a silencing hand as Wilton forced a jeering laugh. But there's more to prove his manufacture and ownership of the weapon that killed the woman. He made the handle from the end of a slat on the bed in the room which I occupied that night. The inference is obvious. He didn't care to risk going outside the house to hunt for the wood he needed. He wouldn't take it from an easily visible place. And, having stolen something from one room, he paid his attention to mine. All this is the supercaution of the so-called smart criminal. It matches the risk he took in returning to the body to hunt for the weapon. That was why he was there when Webster found the body. The handle of the dagger matches the wood of the slat I've just mentioned. You won't find that particular slat upstairs now. 
It was taken out of the house the next day, broken into sections and packed in his bag of golf sticks. But there is proof in this room of the fact that he, and only he, made the dagger. You'll find in the edge of the large blade of his penknife a nick, triangular in shape, which left an unmistakable groove in the wood every time he cut into it. That little groove shows, to the naked eye, on the end of the shortened slat and on the handle of the dagger. If you doubt it... Thunder! Crown interrupted in an odd tone. You're right! He had taken the dagger from his pocket and given it minute scrutiny. He handed it now to Sloane. Wilton, watching the scene with flaming eyes, sat motionless, his chin thrust down hard upon his collar, his face shining as if it had been polished with a cloth. Sloane gave the dagger back to Crown before he spoke in a wheezy, shrill key. "'They're there. The marks. The grooves.' He did not look at Wilton. Hastings straightened to his full stature and looked toward Wilton. "'Now, Judge Wilton,' he challenged, "'you said you preferred to answer the accusation here and now. Do you still?' Wilton, slowly raising the heavy lids of his eyes, like a man coming out of a trance, presented to him and to the others a face which, in spite of its flushed and swollen aspect, looked singularly bleak. "'It's not an accusation,' he said in his roughened, grating voice. "'It's a network of suppositions, of theories, of impossibilities, a crazy structure, all built on the rotten foundation of a previous misfortune.' "'Arrest him, Crown,' Hastings commanded sharply. Wilton tried to laugh, but his heavy lips merely worked in a crazy barrenness of sound. With a vague, clumsy idea of covering up his confusion, he started to light a cigar. He stopped, hands in mid-air, when Crown, shambling to his feet, said, "'Judge, I've got to act. He's proved his case.' "'Proved it!' Wilton made weak protest. "'If he hasn't, let's see your penknife.' Wilton put his hand into his trousers' pocket, began the motion that would have drawn out the knife, checked it, and withdrew his hand empty. He managed a mirthless, dreary laugh, a rattling sound that fell, dead of any feeling, from his grimmest lips. "'No, by God!' he refused. I'll give it to neither of you. I don't have to. In that moment, he fell to pieces. With his thick shoulders dropping forward, he became an inert mass bundled against the table edge. The blood went out of his face so that his cheeks hollowed and shadows formed under his eyes. He was like the victim of a quick consumption. Crown's eyes were on Hastings. "'That's enough,' the old man said shortly. "'Too much,' agreed Crown. "'Judge, 
There's no bail on a murder charge. I'm very glad, Mrs. Brace commented, a terrible satisfaction in her voice. He pays me, at last. In the music room, Dr. Garnet had just given Lucille and Hastings a favorable report on Burn Webster's condition. I should so like to tell him, she said, her glance entreating, if you'll let me. Wouldn't he get well much faster if he knew it, knew the suspense was all over, that neither he nor father suspected any more? I think, the doctor gave his opinion with exaggerated deliberation, it might. In fact, it really will be his best medicine. She thanked him, stars swimming in her eyes. End of chapter 21 Recording by Roger Moline End of No Clue by James Hay